and welcome to Why Not What If. I'm your host, Bruce Catlin. Now, this is the podcast where my guests are doing some pretty amazing things. They've asked themselves questions like, why not try this? What if I did it that way? What if I didn't follow the rules? Why not quit my job and do what I love? Questions like these and others will be answered by an eclectic array of people from all over the world doing all kinds of different things, all shapes and sizes and colors. And hopefully, you will be inspired too to start asking yourself, why not? What if? I am here today with professional, long distance trail runner, competitive mountaineer, a photographer too, a great photographer, because of his photography is how we met, and he's completing his PhD. That is extremely diverse. Wow. So welcome, Pascal Igli from Switzerland. How are you today? Hey, thank you, Bruce, for the introduction. Uh, I'm good. Thank you. Um, I actually just worked a bit late yesterday evening, so I was a bit tired today, but I'm good because... I still got some running uh, before coming home. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, that's um, you're speaking about tired and part of the podcast I have. Why not? What if was because it's not just people that are following a non-traditional career paths and lives, getting a job, you know, going to university, having 12 children or whatever it is, which all that's fine, of course, too. It's that you are doing all these different things and it's so diverse. And I think that you, we all have the opportunity to, to design our life work um, any way we want, any way we want. We all have a choice. So tell, tell us about who you are and what you do. I mean, I just mentioned those are descriptors, but in your own words. Huh, yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm quite diverse and maybe sometimes I'm too too diverse because it's, <laughs> it's dangerous, right? You, I mean, you can't be good at everything. So who am I? Yeah, I'm from the German-speaking part of Switzerland, but now I live in the French-speaking part. I studied environmental engineering. And so I'm quite actually, the environment is quite important to me, uh, sustainability, thought of sustainability. And I think I've always been going to the mountains, like already with my parents, hiking and then mountaineering with my dad. So I started actually going to the mountains more in mountaineering than in running. But then I discovered I was able to, to be stronger if I trained running uh, for for mountaineering as well. And so I didn't enter by a classical kind of uh, athletics pathway. And yeah, then the other side is I'm, I'm trying to do a PhD science. Well, I'm in my last year, actually, and it's... Yeah, it's not so easy because I'm, as you see, as you say, I'm a person who I like to do different things. I think I just, <laughs> I get attracted by different fields. For example, I also like languages. Uh, I learned several languages. Yeah, and <laughs> my PhD is on glaciology. So at least it's kind of a field close to where I'm training uh, on skis. And yeah, and I'm a mountain runner and Actually, yeah, what you say is long, I would say it's long distance compared to athletics, but for trail runners, what I'm doing is almost like short distance because I'm not doing the 100 kilometer ultras, more like the 20 to 40 K. 
uh, which for me is still long enough. Yeah, but I, I'm thinking of doing longer stuff too. That could be nice. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. You know, so there's so many questions I want to ask you, and I'm always trying to think about what listeners would want to ask you. Mm-hmm. So going back into your, you are a member of which um, sports team in Switzerland? Ah, good question. Uh, actually, I am a member of the athletics club in Lausanne, so that's the next town here. But honestly, I'm not really training much with them because they're training more like in a stadium and, and I'm, I'm not living exactly there. So I'm more like a formal member, I have to admit. But I'm also a member of the Alpine Club. And actually there, I've been an instructor for several years for the youth. So I'm guiding mm-hmm. tours for climbing and ski touring. I once was even a president of the youth organization there. Now I have a bit less time, but so I'm more of a, actually, my club is more like the mountaineering club, yeah. <laughs> Did you, so you were a sponsored runner by DinaFit, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, how did that come about? Yeah, that was, uh, it started more like a coincidence, I would say, because I was, well, I was already running competitively, but more or less at an international level. But I was um, with some friends, we got like introduced to a local mountain shop by Saleva. Saleva is a brand that is together with Dynafit. And they then engaged us to be just like ambassadors of the shop. And we got just discount on the products. And we were like sharing our mountaineering uh, adventures and races. And then I think that shop got closed and they, they said, okay, we keep one athlete and pass him on to Dynafit. And that was me. So it was kind of lucky, but I never applied to be like with Dinafit or so, yeah. You know, Dinafit did a really great, I think, one or two minute uh, promo video about you. Where can people see that? Oh, yeah. Um, I think on my webpage you can see it. It's a cool video because it was uh, made in my, actually really in my home mountains, mm-hmm. just above Lake Geneva and also in, at my university. So it's quite, it's quite uh, accurate <laughs> in a way, yeah. I want to stick a little bit with about juggling all these balls, so to speak. You, your environmentalism connected with your PhD, your running, your schema, what you're doing. How do you how do you choose what you're going to do and when you're going to do it? Obviously, you're in a PhD program. There's restrictions to that. And Pascal, for those of you who can't see him, or has a big smile on his face. So, uh, how how do you go about choosing and when do you do it? Yeah, <laughs> that's a difficult <laughs> question because I must say I'm not so good at taking decisions. <laughs> and I often, yeah, <laughs> and I often can't say no, for example. Yeah, maybe that's why I do so many things. Like <laughs> mm. uh, if there's, for example, a new language I can learn, then I usually just do it. But um, uh, good question. So I would say the sport so far, it had more been like my hobby and I, only recently, in the very recent years, I was able to earn some money from it. And before it was really a hobby. And and so it was actually, first of all, it was really just following my profession. So, okay, doing studies and then some internships. And then I found the PhD position, which I thought was interesting mm-hmm. uh, in, in subglacial hydrology. But uh, that was also more of a coincidence. So many things were actually coincidences because a friend said, ah, oh, there's an open position at the university. Why don't you apply? And 
And but then there at that point, by the time I got that position, I was already professional enough. I was already good enough in my sport that I told myself, I'm not going to do just the PhD. It's not what I want because I have something to do in my sport. So I, I talked to the professor from the beginning and said, I can't like, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm going to work disciplined way for this PhD, but I want to work 80% if possible, mm-hmm. a bit less. And well, the position was actually advertised 80%, but you know how it is like PhD students, they always work, you always work more in the end. And mm-hmm. so I was, and he liked that. He, okay, he's quite open-minded, he's British, but he lives in Switzerland since like eight years or 10. And he lives in the mountains too. So he's like, yeah, sure, you go do your running. <laughs> and, but it's maybe easier, it sounds easier than it is. Honestly, it's, yeah, it's because you're always in between two worlds and and you see like people who are really strong in science and investing a lot of energy there. And then you see people who are more in sports and you realize, wow, uh, it's not easy to do, to get to their level while doing, trying to do science. <laughs> So, yeah, I can only imagine you must drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> yes, <as well>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's fun. you know, I don't know if you, you alluded to that you're not um, doing as many races or, or training as much. Um, however, if you look on your website and you look at your uh, your your list of times and wins, uh, it's pretty impressive. Did you want to talk about a couple of those really challenging races and wins that you're most uh, proud of? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) good to mention because it's true that, yeah, during my PhD, I did quite many races already. (laughs) Yeah, so for example, maybe my best results were in 2018 where I won the Skyrunner World Series, Sky Classic category. And so that's composed of several races. You have to have, in the end of the summer, five races count and they're around between two and four hours duration of a race and quite intense, right? You do like between two and 3,000 vertical meters and uh, 20 to, to almost 40K. Mm. And so quite hard running. But And then there's also some vertical Ks. I, I know they're a bit less well-known in the US, but uh, just 1,000 vertical meters up on a very short distance, like two kilometers or three. And there I also have some important wins and I also was second in the World Series of the Vertical Case. And then, yeah, I was Vice World Champion in 2017 in mountain running in long distance. (laughs) And yeah, so I think (laughs) some of these results, they came earlier than I expected. Like I I had like goals and then I realized, wow, I already achieved it this year. But yeah, it's also (laughs) maybe some luck. And hmm, what can I say? And then a lot of local like sky races in Italy or uh, also in South America, in US, uh, the Rat in Montana, I won. In, yeah. And so, yeah, I think sometimes I race too much. I think you can definitely say that because it can make your body very tired, right? <laughs> also, when you're in between, you're working on the glacier and <laughs> doing other things and then you're Again, back to racing hard. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to get to your work um, studying glacier and glacier movement and how important that is right now. I just wanted to stick with this, these wins or not wins, whatever you're training for. So there's the physical training, obviously, but the whole physiology 
the mindset when you made a decision to train for, let's say, did you do Big Sky in Montana? Is that the race that you did? Yes, uh, exactly. The rat in Big Sky. That was a beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I try, actually tried to register this year and I couldn't get in. But no. maybe. Yeah, it's hard to get in. It is. It is. But I wanted to ask you, so do you say I'm going to make a decision to do the best I can or decision I'm going to win this race? And what do you what are, how do you set that mental goal, that statement? Yeah, that's an important question, because I know some athletes, the only goal is to win. Right. Absolutely. They are super determined. But then if they don't win, they're destroyed mentally. Mm. Mm. I'm maybe a bit less like that. I'm like, I'm going to see what's possible. I want to have a good day. I'm going to try what is possible on that day with my body and the, and the competitors. What people often forget is that although your body, everything is perfectly prepared and aligned, it can still be that an unexpected competitor turns up and it's just better than you expected. So it's, yeah. It's maybe hard to just blame yourself. So I'm usually, I have more this attitude that I tell myself, if it doesn't go well, for example, like in the famous Sagama race, Sagama is a marathon in the Basque country in Spain, where I had huge cramps, I could have done a better result. But in the end, it was still a fun day because uh, amazing spectators, we still, we ran hard and yeah, so I have this attitude and then it's even better if you win because it's like cherry on top, right? Some people, because they, they are so determined, I mean, it can help them become better, but then they are so tense that it can make things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Well. So it's important, too, uh, that you're going to have fun as well and enjoy it. Yeah. So for most of us mere mortals who are, you know, trying to just even do a 10-minute mile... <laughs> would you say it's really important to choose a sport that you really enjoy? Because if you don't enjoy it, you probably won't do it, right? Yes. And even once you've chosen a sport, yeah, I think you really have to enjoy what you do because also I think you get better at it if you enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. And how do you know, if you relate this to any job or profession, yeah. not everybody wants to get up and go to work every day. There's no doubt. Oh, yes. So I imagine there's plenty of days when you don't want to get up and go train at five in the morning or whatever time it is. How do you get yourself out of bed and get your shoes on or your skis on? I agree. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, for me, yeah, that's a good question because well, for me, that's never, a, how do you say, a big barrier, unless maybe yeah. someone really, my girlfriend wants to keep me in bed and <laughs> then it's a hard decision. <laughs> but no, no, honestly, um, no, that's a joke. But uh, that for that, I'm always motivated. Of course, sometimes I'm really tired in the morning. and But then I know that once I'm out and after 20 minutes or so, uh, it will be good. And I will feel way better when I'm back home. So you think about this is something that happens to me, even when you may not feel like doing it, your girlfriend and you're warm in bed. And of course, I'm sure that's very Mm -hmm. difficult to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. You think about the results more than you do the action, how you're going to feel afterwards or while you're doing it. Mm, Probably. Good question. I've never thought so much about it. Uh, Yeah, about the results, but maybe also the feeling while I'm doing it, because I mean, while yes. I'm going up, I feel really good usually. 
like most of the days I feel very good going up a mountain way better than sitting like working in front of the PC or yeah yeah or sitting on the sofa yeah so actually I have to remind myself but last time I went up I felt really good right so yeah yeah. Well, speaking and staying along with the athletics, so you recently completed an, a journey expedition, something that's been on my to-do list for a very long time as a Hoat route that you completed this in a really good time. And I know you want to try and do it even faster, but could you tell everybody who's not familiar with this route where it starts or where you started? Where did you stop uh, the struggles or challenges <laughs> which you had along the way? And uh, and and what was your time and all, just everything about it? But basically, what is it? Yeah, so the Haute Route, it's going from Chamonix in France to Zermatt in Switzerland. And it's basically, I think it's the most famous haute route in the Alps. So it's just, it's really linking up two important villages uh, in the, let's say, in the high Alps uh, via the most direct route, I would say, via high passes, right? Mm -hmm. So via glaciers and passes. And and you could add summits if you like, but most people, they go, it's long enough without the summit. And... Yep. So, yeah, it's basically the most direct way between these two places via the high mountains. And, yeah, most people do that in five to maybe seven days, I think around five, and mm. yeah, with a guide and go from hut to hut. Of course, they also carry heavier gear than us. And we did it, it's 108, 108 kilometers and 8,200 vertical meters. Uh, I don't know how much it is in miles, maybe 70, 80 miles. And, yes. and uh, yeah. And, uh, but of course, if you went to all of the huts, it would be slightly longer because you have to go down to the hut. And, and we did it in 17 hours, 40 minutes. And wow, was that straight so, through? Yeah. You went so there was straight, a straight through. through. Yeah. And we left at uh, five in the evening from Chamonix. Uh, I think the sketchiest thing was to get into Chamonix because technically the border was closed because of uh, Corona. Um, uh. And we, well, we just took a chance. We took the train and it was okay. <laughs> we had a certificate of a negative uh, COVID-19 test along and there was no one checking. And... And then we just started at a church in Chamonix. Uh, but the thing is, first you have to run to the next village, which is on the road, eight kilometers. Mm. And yeah, and then we ski up all the way to the first pass, 2,300 vertical meters. And from there, it was just a night. <laughs> and then until 11, almost 11 in the morning. And, but we had people supporting us on the way. So it was not autonomous. Uh, that was really nice. I mean, just mentally also. Uh, and we, we also got lost a few times, not for a long way, because we knew almost all of the places, but some passages we didn't know exactly. And it was also in the dark. You c <sighs> Problem is some places lacked snow. There was just bushes, bushes. So we didn't know exactly where to pass and we got lost a bit. And... And yeah, so you go, it's super beautiful. Like the best was in the middle of the night, a very long uphill from like 1,600 meters to 3,600 meters. And it's just like only the stars and the moon and 
you mm-hmm. hear nothing there's no civilization and it's really nice yeah and the special thing is we both had never done such a long effort in this kind of still relatively intense zone and we felt good like yeah most of the time we felt good <laughs> now, how was it not um sleeping during this did you ever want to lay down and say i'm just too tired to go mm-hmm. on yeah that's the funny thing we didn't feel like that i think we also planned well we slept enough the days before or kind of <laughs> but uh, <laughs> only me it was only once in the morning hours when the sun was already up but like low uh, at seven in the morning or so once in the in long uphill I, it was very monotonous uphill i almost fell asleep like i was going well <laughs> in terms of performance but like my my mind wanted to fall asleep <laughs> so that was funny but it's usually like normal with my body when whenever i've been out for several hours in the dark my body my body wants to sleep right <laughs> it's normal <laughs> well you know that goes to that same old thing that uh, adage that we all know is that the um the body will always can do more than we think it's the mind that may fail us and tell us that we can't yeah it's amazing it really is amazing people can and people can look online as i've done for videos it is stunningly gorgeous was it a full moon when you went uh almost actually it was uh, maybe a week before full moon yeah so that was also very helpful (laughs) that's really (laughs) because in the end all all our headlamps almost ran out of battery (laughs) I don't know why we didn't plan that well, but we, I think we had them on on too strong level, and in the end it was just very low level, and we were tra- just trying to nail the downhill while, yeah, on low light. <laughs> yeah, so I imagine most people like myself would probably hire a guide and go and do it, unless I had you as my guide. But I, but yeah. I wouldn't be able to. I don't think I could do it. It's in 17 hours. Now you did mention that. Uh, when we talked before uh, this interview, that you wanted to do it again faster. So what's your goal for next time? Yeah, it would be actually, we think it's possible to do it in 16 hours or less because because we wasted some time, like, <laughs> first of all, getting lost for a few minutes several times. And then, uh, uh, what can I say? We had some longer breaks. Long means like 15 to 20 minutes, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. because my friend, he had huge pain in his toes in his feet mm. and he just had to get some uh, like some taping up and stuff so he had so that's why we had some longer breaks and so there we could have easily one time and also the fact that the, in some lower valleys the snow didn't go all the way down so we spent like sometimes almost an hour just running and so instead of skiing, let's say a part that is usually skied down in two minutes, maybe we had to jog down uh, for 20 minutes. So that's mm. huge. And also while you jog down, you lose more energy, right? Instead of skiing. So uh, while carrying the skis. And mm. I think there you could, if you have good conditions, even with the same shape and everything, you could already win like half an hour to one hour. And... Yeah, we think we would try that because actually there's a record by two French guys. There was 16 and a half hours and it was made when the conditions were better. And yeah, mainly the snow was down to the valleys. And yeah, I think they also knew the route a bit better than us. So and I, we think that we could 
should beat the time because usually these people they are not fitter than us in races they are less fit than us so <laughs> that's yeah. the world record is 16 and a half yeah but it was a slightly different route they passed by a pass that was slightly lower okay. but in general i think it was almost the same distance yeah so 16 and a half yeah <laughs> Well, congratulations. Wonderful. Did you take a lot of pictures that people can see if they want to? Or are you posting yeah. those to a social media? Yeah, we have some some pictures on Instagram. And also we had a, actually in one place, we had a professional photographer waiting for us. And so there's some good photos from there too. Actually, uh, my girlfriend, Sophia, she went up with him to the glacier. They skied up in very early in the morning to catch us. Speaking, congratulations again. It's wonderful. I, I will do that one day. When you and I may be a run and not in the snow, but we'll see. Speaking of snow and receding snow, yeah. Tell us the uh, depressing stats about the receding of glaciers in Switzerland <laughs> and why you decided to choose. Well, you alluded to why you chose. Uh, is it safe to say environmental science? Mm, yes, uh, environmental engineering is what I studied. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. how can you? What What do you hope to do to reverse mm -hmm. the smelting of the glacier? Tell us. Tell us the the the, the sad news about how much yeah. they're receding per year. Yeah, it's true that when I decided on my studies, uh, that was uh, in high school already. I already was very aware of climate change, and I already was aware that. Way too little was being done, especially by governments, uh, to halt it. And I mean, it's crazy. That was like uh, 14 years ago. And actually, like it was already urgent then. It's crazy. And yeah, now I think more is, is happening. I think slowly things are starting to change. Like, But uh, what can I say? Like the Swiss glaciers, they're receding at about between 20 and 40 meters per year. Now, wow. and, yeah, and the projections are very clear. It's that the medium to small glaciers, most of them are going to disappear by around 2070. And and even if we like, even if we apply the most strict measures to halt climate change, for example, if we stick to the Paris Agreement, we we reduce um, net emissions to zero by 2050. Mm -hmm. and even then. Um, like most of the glaciers, many are going to disappear and just like the big ones, parts of the big ones are going to stay, but like a third of the big ones, a third of the length. And so that's the thing, because this the whole climate system, it's so inert, right? Like until until the CO2 emitted into the atmosphere has an effect on temperature, there's a big lag in time. And until this... Um, uh, change in temperature has an effect on glaciers. There's another lag. So actually, what we're seeing now, the strong melt, it's already from several years ago, um, from the emissions maybe 20 years ago or more. So <laughs> the worst is still to come. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's not funny, but uh, sometimes maybe better to laugh. I mean, I must say, I'm not this kind of guy saying, oh, it's so sad, like all the glaciers leave. I mean, the mountains are still going to be there, right? And and we're going to live somehow, but but I think it's more uh, scary maybe on a global scale in terms of many places people are going to lack water or they're going to have too much water like floods or 
uh, and uh, lack of uh, nutrition, or there's some places where it's simply too hot to live. Mm. Actually, many places. And yeah, I think and some big natural hazards are, are going to be yeah are, are going to be coming for us. Uh, even Switzerland, is, it, where there's so much rain and water stored by the glaciers, we are going to have more problems with uh, water in summer. So there's a couple follow-up questions I have for you. Mm-hmm. Is that you know I like you would spend 24 hours a day outdoors if I could, mm-hmm. and when I'm in the mountains running, uh, for those of you, I live in northern New Mexico, which is 7,500 feet as an average above sea level. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, it we're in actual drought. We our water levels are the lowest they've been since in 120 years. As a as a runner and as a scientist, combine these two things. How does your emotions of maybe in your situation in Switzerland, a, a drought possibly in the summer, or the glaciers disappearing, which means the end of something? How do you keep that out of your science, your your research? Mm, good question. You mean that you don't get so emotional, right? Like, correct. Yeah, it's true. It's not always easy when you see the glaciers. They used to be much more white and more um, voluminous, and now they're just like a chunk of uh, a lot of dirt on it because there's more debris falling down on them and they're melting away. Yeah, it's true. It's not so easy to, but then I try to rationalize and say, but nature's always been changing. I mean, it's just uh, changing very fast now due to the human impact. I mean, there have always been ice ages, and then again, like the, the glaciers disappeared. But of course, everything was much more slowly. And as yeah. uh, so I tell myself, well, it's just <laughs> one organism that is the humans on the planet. They have just a crazy in- impact right now. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. what you talk about. It's This is was also concerning me when I was in Montana to see this. I mean, there was smoke all over uh, these huge fires. I mean, some of the fires are normal, they're seasonal. But it seems they're increasing, right? A lot, like we've seen in California too. And and that's scary. Like if you think of, okay, it's already like this now. What about in 50 years? <laughs> yeah. It is. It's, um, it, well, I know this is not a discussion about global warming and environmentalism. Yeah. It's real and it's important. Do you have any personal thoughts of what any individual can do to help <laughs> mitigate what's happening? Yeah, I think um, there's on many scales. Well, first, as an individual, uh, I would say everything is right. Like some people think uh, they, they can do nothing, but I think even a small action is helpful. For example, eat some less meat, um, maybe go more by bike or by public transport instead of always by car or by plane. Or, Of course, you sometimes need to fly somewhere. Um, so, uh, for example, I compensate my flights with a, yeah, it's not perfect, but it helps. Uh, so, for example, trees are planted for the emissions. But then I guess the biggest, bigger impact is how you vote and talk to others. I would say in a positive way, don't blame them for like driving a lot or driving a big car, but tell more like, see, you could do this uh, or, or show them what you do. And... I realize that some solutions are actually also much more structural than we think. For example, people only look at their travel or their food, but for example, how we heat our home, 
instead of burning the, the fuel, uh, let's say uh, petrol, I mean, now there's heat pumps that can be installed. And if the electricity is more sustainable, let's say from solar or hydropower or so, then uh, it's way more efficient to heat with a heat pump. And this, I think now in many countries is changing. But yeah, it's a huge task. I don't know. It's, it's tremendous. And I think, yeah, we need to maybe change faster than we would like to. But <laughs> Yes. Well, there are many ways. Um, you can, yeah. there are solar kits to build your own solar hot water heater. You don't even, yeah, there be expensive. you can do a compost water heater where you have yeah. hoses under compost and um, to keep it hot, you can urinate on it and they, they get very, <laughs> very hot quickly. What? So yeah, there's many things, but anyway, um, I'll, uh, I'll, maybe we should have another discussion about that sometime. Mm -hmm. Tell us, by the way, where are you studying your PhD? Where are you getting your PhD from? Uh, it's University of Lausanne. But uh, yeah, and I studied at, well, original studies were at uh, ETH Zurich and EPFL Lausanne, so that's engineering schools, yeah. And when do you hope to get your PhD? Do you have to do a I final hope, I hope at the end of this year, actually. Congratulations. <laughs> I know you're going to do it because you're going to set your mind. You're going to think about the results and not putting on your shoes. <laughs> you're just going to get them on. You know, um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, if you told us, would you say that the... Um, the when you're out you're taking photographs and i've seen your photographs and reasons that we you and i uh, came across each other's track one was i believe from vert run or run vert yes. which is a running company based in france um they mm -hmm. did an interview with me uh, several yeah. months ago which was great and i think they're a great organization based in yeah. france and then the other was that I, I saw your, your photographs, and one in particular, which I have yet to paint, I wrote you and said, I love this painting of this misty field, may I use it? And you wrote back right away. So yeah, so cool. Do you photograph, or do you take photography often? Do you ever say to yourself, going back to juggling all these balls, today's a day to go photograph, or I just, I really don't have the time for that? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't do that, but I should maybe, because I remember when I was a kid, I did that. I used to have like an old manual camera and mm. I took photographs and I liked that. But now I only take my phone along for runs and I like to take photos. Sometimes I think I take too many because I don't know, <laughs> because I, I find so many nice places and, yeah. and views. And sometimes uh, people tell me, whoa, you took like 30 pictures on this tour and but yeah, I should maybe do more conscious because, as you say, um, yeah, I think I like to to take to to do photography, but I haven't allowed myself the time to do it properly. I would say. Well, it's, I think it's important to document. I'm like you. I go on my trail runs and I spend more time collecting uh, minerals and rocks because I make my own paint pigment. So I'm always picking up things. So I'm coming yeah. down much. I'm coming down much heavier than I went up. But also, I imagine you'll do some <laughs> that documentation in your professional work once you have your uh, PhDs. And, you know, speaking of uh, traveling, I wanted to ask you and you asked me to ask you mm -hmm. how many countries you've traveled to Ooh. and. What countries uh, haven't you been to that you would like to go? Yeah, actually, I once tried to count. I think it was on a very long bus ride in Argentina, and we tried to each summarize. And I thought it was maybe about 40 countries I've traveled wow. to. 
And uh, but uh, several I still miss. Yeah, I've traveled to, for example, Russia, uh, the U.S. Of course, several places in U.S., China, Canada, Ecuador, many of South America, and then of course several in Europe, um, Mongolia and Nepal. But for example, I'm missing whole of uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, and I think there's very interesting places. But I think I would like to go more back to the Himalayas. It's just so, yeah, so impressive, both the culture and the nature, like, yeah, so enriching. And <laughs> so I want to, you know, we only have a few minutes left and I wanted to ask you just a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's eight hours later uh, from Mountain Time. So Pascal is now going on t- quarter of nine at night. And he's ran and he's studied and his brain is fried and he's showing up like a trooper. And I, I, you yeah. know, I'm so grateful for your time. I know that you're going to help a lot of people or inspire, I should say. And in speaking of inspiring people, who has had the greatest influence on your life? If you were to pick one or one person, one or two. Yeah, that's a really difficult question. I know you. I said that question was a good one, but it's still difficult. I think it was my... my <laughs> my mother, you were, your mother, was very important, but she and yeah. un, unfortunately she is not alive anymore. But my mother was very important because of her, I don't know, her spirituality and her way to view things. And I think she brought. Funnily, she didn't go to the mountains much, but she told my father to take me to the mountains. And <laughs> and then, apart from my mother, it's difficult to say, huh? Yeah, you um, must be careful in case someone listens to that and say, I know, but I mean, exactly. But for sure, <laughs> I've always been, uh, how can I say, very intrinsically motivated just by going to the nature. So I was never the guy who, oh, I want to be like that star. I, I was always like, I want to go up to the summit. And I was never like, I want to re- uh, imitate that career or something. So it was very intrinsic. But of course, like people like Kilian Jornet, they are, <laughs> since I know them, they are very big kind of reference. And now he's become a friend of mine. But but like when I actually, when I started mountain running and I was running already pretty well, I was winning local races or even Swiss champion. I didn't know about this, for example, Kilian Jornet, <laughs> mm-hmm. although he was already quite a, a name. Uh, I didn't know about him and I was just running. <laughs> And I think that's, yeah, that's what is cool about going to the mountains, maybe. There's no, I mean, if you don't want it, there's no one measuring you or telling you what you have to do or timing. So, yeah. That's right. Well, speaking of Killian Journey, I've been a fan of his for a long time. And not just because of the records he sets. Uh, I, I would say more importantly is his character. Yeah, um, the way he, he and his professionalism, which is more important to me, uh, which brings me to another question about uh, we don't have to talk about it now. But the question is, how are you measuring risk? When I look in Killian Journey and going to Everest without oxygen twice a week, I go, how much longer? And I know he's had some devastating losses. And after he's had a child, he and got married. He's I think he's scaled back some of his risk. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but. 
this measuring of risk, how do I read about, you know, I was reading about another mountain climber, a woman who's a photographer was an outdoor magazine, outside magazine, and she lost both of her close boyfriends. So how do you, how do you measure, how do you measure that risk? Mm -hmm. I must say for myself, I'm quite risk aware and I have had a good formation by the Swiss Alpine Club. So I never, I was never a very big risk taker, although you know, like in your early 20s, you always try some crazy things. But yes. Like we did some hard tours and, but I must say that we always planned pretty well. And we, and most important is that you're able to judge your own capabilities, right? And, and you know when to turn around. So I was, maybe from the outside, it looks like I'm a risk taker, but I think, I mean, I've never had a major accident like that where I completely underestimated stuff. And it's because I've had a really quite solid formation for several weeks where really pro by pro guide. And I think that helps a lot because you learn about the main mistakes you can do regarding weather, group thinking, rope management, uh, natural hazards and so on. And I think Kilian, uh, okay, maybe he hasn't had the same formation, but the thing is he is so much in the mountains and he's so skilled that people think he's taking a lot of risks but i think for his capabilities and his experience it's much less risk mm-hmm. because um because he's so he feels so well in that terrain and of course he takes way more risk than me and he i think he is not afraid of dying like he's he's really sometimes he's maybe scared but he has a different approach to the mountains than most people. That's for sure. Like he's very absolute, but he, uh, I mean, I saw in some videos, like you see that he's running on a ridge and people think, Oh my God, if he stumbles, he falls, but it's not the case. Like 99% of people, they would fall, but he like catches himself because yes. he's, he's such good reflexes and he's out so much that he has like a second safety margin. But on the other hand, I see that he has been lucky many times too, like with avalanches, yes. with um, soloing and stuff. He could have died several times, I think. And I think he goes to the mountains with a different mindset. He goes there like, okay, I could die and it's okay. Because that's where he'd want to die. And also, I would say yeah. he's probably very fortunate to have you as a, uh, you know, he's a great athlete. He seems like a great father and husband and just all around human being. And you, I want to go just real quickly back to your mother, because, you know, mother's parents are so important. So tell me about what was her, if you feel comfortable, what was her spirituality and how did that, I'm not talking about religion, but what was her spirituality? And you can freely talk about religion if you like that it that how did it influence you her her spiritual practice yes i would say um she taught us a very um, being very close to nature in your mindset from quite young on so she took us to the forest a lot and we yeah we didn't have much i mean we didn't have a car or so so we were very close to like the basics i would say and I would say her spirituality was a mix of different religions, but like originally she was just normal, like Christian, mm-hmm. uh, Protestant. But then she, I think she adopted much more like some Buddhism things. And, and, uh, I would say it's a mix and it was her own, her own uh, spirituality. But, um, how can I say? Yeah, I think she, she liked to see, for example, things in nature as like, beings like even a tree or the, the mountains and kind of talk to them and 
and yeah, and thanks. Do you that, talk to them? Do you talk I, to? I think sometimes I do. Maybe I I have to. It's sometimes I'm in danger of losing it a bit. But yeah, I don't think you are. I I do. And as a matter of fact, yeah. there are a set of six trees on a mountain trail here that every year they have predicted the accurate amount of snowfall to me every year. Wow. So thank you for sharing that intimate detail. And the one thing, I, the last thing I want to ask you is that so you've inc- you've created what would be to a lot of people an enviable life. Now I know you're sitting there going, they would not want my schedule. I'm so tired. However, your life compared to other people's lives, and I and I don't like. I only compare to say, well, he has something I want. How should I go about getting it? So people who want to create, it's not the exact life, but they want to create a diverse life of this envi- you know, environmental engineer, an environmentalist, a long dis- or, or a high mountain runner, sky runner, a schemo, a photographer. <laughs> uh, what would you say, what are some of the things that they can do to take one step today to start creating the life that they want? Yes, that's a really cool question because I see some people kind of envy what I do, although mm-hmm. sometimes think, oh, I'm like struggling. And But uh, I would say, first of all, follow your passions. Like it's the, the one way to go. Although I know yeah, you need, sometimes you need to maybe accept the basic job that you don't like to do just to support your living. But follow the passion, like what you really like to do and try to really follow that like with your heart and not just because someone told you so or because you can uh, have more recognition in society, but really because you like to do it. That's, I think, very important. And then, yeah, and stay, how can I say, stay true to your to your beliefs. And, and uh, I think it's hard to give these advices, but also know that some of what I have now is also luck, right? Like it's like, okay, being maybe born into the right setting or having had some life, uh, well, earlier life choices or also just, yeah, the place I live in. But I I guess some things you can really, I've seen some friends of mine or other people who got inspired by me, I've seen them change how they, yeah, how they value things they do and how they prioritize. I think it's about priority, actually. For example, you also need to realize you can't do everything. For example, if you always like to go out or to the cinema or so, but you also want to, to become a very good runner, well, if you work a lot or so, at some point, maybe you can't do both. You have to choose. Do I go out with my friends on a Saturday evening or do I do a long ski tour? You can't mm-hmm. do both. And I think some people, they think they can have both. And sometimes you just need to prioritize. So it sounds like you're saying, and if there was any influence from your mother's Buddhist practice or interest, <laughs> is that there's a saying in Buddhism that you never give up and you always look forward. If you're looking in the past, you're just going backwards. You're never. It's, yeah. it's not that you shouldn't learn from your past, especially training or running. Exactly. However, the Buddhist concept of I'm going to make a decision. I will take massive amounts of action to accomplish it, and I will never ever give up on that dream ever yes that's amazing and i think i'm still learning that actually because sometimes i also don't believe in my own decisions but yeah i think it's about that and uh and you it's very important what you say like you i think you should learn from your past some people say don't look back but i think you need to look back and say i can learn something 
but then you shouldn't like get stuck in your past, right? Like, oh, I could have done that or. So it's not a regret. It's a lesson learned. Yeah, I would say just say, okay, like an algorithm, like in a, <laughs> in a weather model or in a climate model, they do that, yeah. right? They look back at <laughs> what happened there at the data and they learn from that and they calculate the future. <laughs> well, Pascal, I want to tell you, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Yeah. I hope we get to meet in person one day. I'm well due for a trip back to Switzerland. It's been a long time. I can't thank you enough. So we've been talking to Pascal Igle, who is, as you've heard, he's a world-class runner, a sky runner, and a ski mower, and now a uh, haute route um, challenger for the world time. He's a photographer, and he's getting his PhD in environmental engineering and studying glaciers in Switzerland. And he, you can learn more about him at Pascal Igle. Dot com. That's Pascal Igle is spelled E-G-L-I dot com and on Instagram with the same name. And I I um I, I thank you so much. So and I appreciate Thanks you being you, here. Chris. Yeah. You're welcome. Well, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Why Not What If? And if it has inspired you, let's hope that you start asking yourself, why not? What if? So if you or someone you know would like to be considered as a guest on an upcoming episode, please write to me at Bruce, why not me, at gmail.com. And I hope you'll tune in to next week's show. Thanks again for joining me.